So we are starting into a new season in the church calendar. We've been trying to follow the church calendar a little bit, not tied to it. Um, but if you're unfamiliar, the, the church the church universal has its own calendar, and it begins the season of Advent. So the four weeks before Christmas, we begin to, to celebrate the birth of Christ, remember that, that Jesus was coming. He, he came long ago. There was a season of waiting, and so we learned to wait in that season. And then we're also in this season of waiting before he comes again. And then after Christmas, there's goes through into January, and then there's a short period, and then we start with Lent. And Lent is a season of waiting also, but it's a season of reflection, a season of looking inward. And as we journey into the desert, like Jesus journeyed into the desert at the beginning of his ministry. And uh, so Lent is kind of an interesting thing to start talking about, because especially the first, Lent starts on Ash Wednesday. So it started last Wednesday. Anybody familiar with Ash Wednesday? Anybody at all? Okay, many of you. Good. So um, we hardly ever talk about Ash Wednesday, and so I'm kind of pretending like this morning is an Ash Wednesday sermon because we don't talk about what Ash Wednesday is really all about, and it's about death. I have spent the whole week just sitting in my office and my study and different places thinking about death. I just, you know, like, with my head in my hands thinking about death over and over again all week long. It's been a very dreary week. How about for you? Are you guys okay? You guys are looking at me like, are you okay? How am I supposed to respond to you right now? I'm like, I'm, I'm being semi-serious. I've been thinking about death because that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to talk about it from one of the, I think, top two or three most hopeful books of the whole Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, which is about, you know, everything is meaningless. So if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, that would be a great place. We're going to be in chapter three um, in a few minutes. Uh, I've been thinking about death, and here's the big thing I've been thinking about. It's this statement, and as I look out at you, I, I, I have to say this, and this is hard. You are going to die. It's just going to happen. Um, Ash Wednesday, what, what they do, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, they take ashes that are from Palm Sunday, the, week, the year before, the palm fronds that celebrated Jesus coming in, and they burn them, and then they put them and smear them on your forehead, and they say, you are going to die. You need to remember, from ashes you came to ashes you will return, to dust you came, from dust you came to dust you will return. It's the message of Ash Wednesday is not just ashes to ashes, dust to dust, or lint, really, it's this wisdom that comes with embracing the fact that we are all going to die. Our culture, Christian and non-Christian, really doesn't buy into this very well. Like, we, we, we push it back. We don't want to hear the message that we are going to die. But if you read Scripture honestly, and you just read through it, and you're watching, that there seems to be, like, sometimes people say there's a gold thread that runs through all of Scripture. It's this gold thread of resurrection and redemption. But there's also a black thread right next to it, which is death, that we are going to die since the beginning. I don't even have to work very hard to get Genesis into this thing. If you're from around here, you know, like, every sermon I say Genesis because it's in there. Everything you need to know about human beings you can find in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, it's where it all begins. Death enters the picture, and it sneaks its way through the whole story of humanity. Some of us are not too interested in the topic of death, so we avoid it. Some of us are not uh, real familiar with Lent or Ash Wednesday or any of those things because we don't know anything about it, and so we kind of avoid it, and we come to it, and we're just like all newbies to this thing. And I, I heard about this pastor... When he, was, he came to faith really late in life. He was like 22 or 23, um, late in his life, or early life. So that sounds so old, doesn't it? 
He's only in his 30s when he's telling this story. So he, he was in his 20s when he came to faith. And uh, he got this, this job after he graduated working downtown New York City. And at lunch hour, he came out of his building to have his lunch. And it was next to a cathedral. And he started noticing that all these people were walking around with the ashes on their foreheads. And he just, again, he's a very new Christian, doesn't know much about it. And the, this church that he had been in had been talking a lot about the book of Revelation, which talks about this mark of the beast thing that no, nobody knows what it is. And he started watching these people walk past with this ashes on their forehead, and he's looking, and he's like, what is this? And he sees another person and another person and another person. And he became afraid. He's like, this is the mark of the beast. This is it. It's all going to end. I'm going to die. We're all going to die because these people have got the mark of the beast. This is the second coming. And he's just freaking out because he didn't know. He didn't know what it was about. So I'm sure that you will agree with me as we go through the text today and this whole thing about Lent that actually I think that Lent is a much more positive thing than the mark of the beast and it's a much more positive thing than just the message you're going to die, that there is hope actually behind that message, especially as we read this passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to read it now. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to be at verse 16 through the end of the chapter, which is 22. It's not very long. So this is uh, believed to be Solomon, the wisest king ever to live. Think about wisdom and being wise. This is what he had to say. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, wickedness was there. And in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there as well. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For he has appointed a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to human beings, that God is testing them to show that they are but animals. For the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so the other dies. They all have the same breath. And humans have no advantage over the animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all, go to, all are from dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upward or the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. And so I saw that there was nothing better than all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. Who can bring them to see what will be after them? Praise God. Isn't that an encouraging, hopeful lovely passage. You're all just going to go home like, dude, it's rain and snowing outside. It's dark and dreary. It's middle of February. This is the worst time of year. I've got seasonal effective, however you say that, disorder. I'm half depressed all the time. And now I come to church looking for a little bit of hope. And what do you give me? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. See what I mean by upbeat and positive? But hidden within this really depressing sounding text I think that there are five, uh, you guys familiar with this term, life messages? The things that we hear that kind of like create a song in our head that we live by, messages that our parents maybe told us when we were little or, or uh, we heard at church, and it, it causes us to live certain ways. We just kind of live by that message running through there. So I think there are five life messages hidden within this text. And I'm going to share all five of them with you, but we're only really going to talk about the one. Um, they're, they're hidden in there. And you might actually think of these as promises. These are promises to you. And Christians, I like to use that word because Christians love promises. People at church love promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen. They're all good. They're all hopeful. So these are promises that we really need to embrace. We need to hold on to them. And really for the sake of our own souls, 
okay, for the sake of our own spirits. These, these, met, these promises that God makes that if we hold on to them will in, expand our souls and make us bigger people inside. I'm not, not saying outside necessarily. You have to eat to do that. But inside, our souls, the biggest part of us, the part where we meet with God will expand and grow as we embrace these. So uh, if you may be familiar with some of these if you read the book Adam's Return by Richard Rohr. I read it with some guys here recently. Um, but he highlights and clarifies them really well. And here's the five promises. You might want to write these down because you might even, if you're a tattoo person, you might want to think about tattooing these on your body, okay? Here they go. Five promises from God. Number one. You're so excited, I can tell. Hold on. Here we go. Number one. Life is hard. Yay! I promise you, life is hard. Second, even more, even better, you are not important. Not at all. Number three, life is not about you. This is getting better. Number four, and this is the one that makes us squirm, you are not in control. You can't make it happen. You cannot control it. And number five, and this is the one we're going to spend most of our time on, you are going to die. Five promises. And I promise you, these things are all true. Life is hard. You are not important. Life is not about you. You are not in control, and you are going to die. Let's start with the first one. How many of you know that life is hard? Raise your hands. Yeah, experienced it before. Life is hard. It doesn't take very long for us to discover this. We don't have to spend too many years on this planet to discover that it's often difficult. And the passage that we read here actually kind of highlights it. Part of what makes life hard is the fact that when we're looking for justice in the world, what we often find is wickedness, right? We often find just brokenness and distortion and, and graft and hate and, and all of these things where justice should be, there is no justice. Things are just not as they should be. How many of you have experienced, and then we're going to jump ahead a little bit, to, that your life is not in your control? A few of you, yeah. Some of you are like, I can't even admit that yet. I think this is another thing we learned really quickly, that there are many things that we cannot control, though most of us pretend to have it all under control, right? That's what we want to do. We want to make life look like, at least from the outside, oh, they got it all together. They're a great person. My son or my daughter, they're so good. They just, their stuff's all in order. They've got their finances in order. Their life is in control. They're not whacked out on drugs or this or that. They're just doing so good. They're really in control. But if you just stop and think about it for a minute, there's so many things we can't control. Uh, let's start with the weather, right? right? Ba basically, our weathermen can't even like guess at how what it's going to be tomorrow and get it right half the time, much less control it. They can't, they can't make it rain. They can't control the economy, even though we have a, a, the Fed out there who's raising interest rates and lowering interest rates, trying to make our economy work. But we can't control the economy. We can't control the actions of others. They're going to think what they think, feel what they feel, do what they do. We can't control or change them. They're just doing their thing. And really, only on the best of days, psychologists tell us that can we even control ourselves. More often than not, we are out of control of our own behaviors. And it's just where we live. And we look and we see, just like the passage says, in places where righteousness should be, where people should be doing the right things, where we should be living in the right way in such a way that brings flourishing to the world, that helps us grow and, 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 and experience the life of God in this world. Instead of righteousness, what we see is wickedness. You're not in control. The other three messages or promises, they take someone from the outside to tell us, though. The first two, you're just going to discover no matter what. It's just going to happen. 
you're going to discover that life is hard and that you are not in control. But the other three, we really need somebody to tell us. We need to hear it from somebody. And the first one is this, you're not important. We, the, 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 uh, the author here of Ecclesiastes says we're not actually any better than the animals. And some people love animals better than human beings, and sometimes I get that because animals are nice most of the time. My dog, Dexter, loves me unconditionally, and I love Dexter unconditionally, and it's the best thing to come home to at the end of the day is this wagging little ball of fur, right? They're lovely. But the, the uh, author of Ecclesiastes says, you know, we're really actually not much better than the animals as human beings, I think I'm more important than my dog. I would value my life over that of my dog. But he says we have the same breath and we come from the same source. I really do want to be important. That's why, you know, we, we get career jobs and we try to climb the ladder and we get more important jobs with more power and more prestige and more pay. We think it makes us important, gives us value. But when we go to bed each night... And I, and I want you to know this. This is what you're doing. Every night that you go to bed, and some of you are like, well, I haven't slept in a week. Eventually, you will. <laughs> Eventually, you will. And when you go to bed and you go to sleep, you are forced in that moment to confess that the world doesn't need you at all. You go to bed, and this thing just keeps turning. You wake up in the morning. Gravity's still functioning. The sun came up. Even if it's behind the clouds, it's there. The moon and the stars go by in their courses, and you did nothing to make it happen. Nothing. As far as this universe is concerned, you're not that important. Not important is all, at all. The fourth thing is that your life is not about you. Now, it's just, I feel rude even saying it, right? Huh? Well, we can talk about that later. Yeah. I feel rude even saying that your life is not about you, but this is the truth, that life isn't about us. And this is where I think we, so many of us get it wrong. When we come to life from a selfish perspective, where it's about me and my good, that's actually where most of the injustice in the world happens. I'll just use the border crisis as an example. This isn't political at all. But think about how we come to a place like the border crisis. Typically, what the discussion is, is what's best for our country, what's best for our security, what's best for our economy, not what's best for somebody else. And that's what allows suffering to continue. And I'm not saying I have a solution. I'm not saying just open the borders, okay? Don't, don't go get upset about that. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is we come to these questions from the perspective of us, of me, and what's best for me. As we progress through life, we have to discover that there is a God out there, and he loves this world, and, and I'm not him, and you're not him. So we learn to pray just like Mary, the mother of Jesus, prayed, may it be done unto me as you have said. We let go of our life and find out that it's not about us. And lastly, and most importantly for this discussion today, is that you're going to die. You know, and on one hand, everybody's like, duh, right, I know I'm going to die. But on the other hand, we don't really live that way. Verse 19 says, from dust you come to dust you shall return. But we really avoid this idea. We've, my family have been watching this TV show, and, and this is just how behind the times I am, okay? It's called The Middle. Is anybody familiar with The Middle? It's from like 2009. Some of you are like, dude, I wasn't even born yet. Um, yeah. Not Audrey, but uh, two, like 2009, he's like, not me. Um, it's this great TV show about a 
semi-dysfunctional family living in the middle, middle America, right? So they're like in Iowa, and they are middle class, like lower middle class, and they're in the middle of the teenage years. They've got like a third grader all the way up to a high schooler, and they're just in the middle of their marriage. They're 20 years married, and they're middle age. I mean, everything about this place is middle. And there's this one episode, it's like the second or third episode, and I highly recommend you watch it. It's a little crude, I'll just give you that caveat, but I laugh so hard. Uh, this littlest one is a little bizarre, and he's, it's Christmas time, and he's just sad. I mean, like all of us sometimes experience some sadness around Christmas, and he's just like, it's just so sad. And his dad walks into the living room one day, and, and he is laying underneath the Christmas tree. His feet are sticking out of the Christmas tree, and he's just looking at him, he goes, and his name is Brick, which is kind of weird, right? His name is Brick. He says, Brick, what are you doing? He's like staring at the light, trying to figure out the meaning of Christmas. He's like, what are you talking about? And he grabs his legs and pulls them out. And he goes, don't you understand, Dad? It's all just meaningless. It's pointless. We're all just going to die, and it's just sad. And Christmas isn't, I mean, it's supposed to be all this hope and light and look. It's just all, just everything's going to, everybody's going to die. And he's like, you're right, Brick. That's why we have television and books and the internet, so that we don't have to think about death. We can just avoid it all the time. So why don't you go watch a movie, right? <laughs> but that's how we live. That's, it really is. We have all of this entertainment, all of this stuff, all of the activities we can do, all the sports we can watch and play in order to take our mind off the reality that someday we are going to die. We really only have one life to live, though. Death is a boundary. It's a limit. Our bodies are not immortal. They're vulnerable. They're finite. It's a big word, and we're going to talk a bit about it. But there's good news in the fact that we're vulnerable and finite. Ash Wednesday and Lent is really the church's attempt at helping people grasp this idea that you are going to die, that you only have so many years of life. And we know none of us have a guarantee of how many that is. But you will one day die. Somebody will one day write one of these little obituaries about you, and it has your life. This is from one I went to yesterday for uh, one of our church members, Rachel. Her father died. And it says, Dale Jean Atchison's 1948-2024. We all have a dash. Just this little short period of life that we get to live. And none of us know what that ending number is. The date has started, but we're just living this life. And there's good news in the fact that there is an end date, but it's what we do with the life here and now that matters. So we need to remember that we are both finite and vulnerable human beings and allow this to motivate us into life. Finite, that's an even bigger word, finitude. I love using big words. Don't you guys love big words? You can write it down. You can impress all of your friends with it this week when you use it. Yes, uh, I was thinking about the finitude of human life, and they're going to be like, man, you should go take a philosophy class or something. Finitude refers to the fact that we are limited human beings, that that's our nature. We have boundaries. Again, we only have so many years to live. We only each have 24 hours in a day. Despite how many times in a day you will say, I will make time for that, you can't actually make time. All you're doing is sacrificing something else. You only get 24 hours. I learned this valuable lesson from our associate pastor, Janice, when we were first on staff. It was one of the first things she taught me. Okay, she's, she's really wise. You want to spend time with this woman. Ask her to coffee. If you buy her coffee, you'll get so much wisdom out of her, I promise. She's like, I don't have time. I'm like, you, you do, Janice. You have 24 hours a day. Um, she says, so she says to me, I'm like, I'm so busy. There's just not enough time for it all. She goes, you have the same amount of time everybody else has, Jamie. We all have 24 hours. 
We all have 24 hours. We really, okay, beyond that, we're limited in our emotional and relational capacity. How much time we have the ability and space in our hearts to, to love and care for people and the number of friends we have. And each of us has got a different capacity for this, but there is a limited capacity because we all get out to the end of it and we're like, I'm so tired, people. I just need a break. I just need to get away. We're, we're finite. We have boundaries. There are seasons of our life where we look at things and we're like, man, the possibilities are endless. There is so much that I could do and so much I could be. I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, uh, thinking about our sabbatical, which we're taking pretty soon. I'm like, the possibilities are endless of what we could do with our sabbatical. And then that got me thinking about hey, my life. Like, you know what? The possibilities are endless of my life. I'm f- I turned 49 a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, but I've still got maybe 50 years left. I, like if I die at 99, that's what I'm hoping for, right? 99. Um, I, I got this time. Like, the possibilities are endless. I could do anything except for politics. Anything except for politics. I don't want to do politics. So there's these seasons where we just can see the hope, the possibilities, what we could do with our time, with our lives, who we're going to be as we graduate school. But then there's also seasons where life comes undone, when tragedy strikes, when we suddenly become aware that we are locked into this one body, and this one body has cancer. We're locked into this one relationship, and the relationship is struggling. We're locked into this zip code, and I can't get out because of my job situation or my finances or whatever reason. We become locked into one space, and it seems like we can do nothing in it. That's sad and scary, but it's balanced by the possibilities are endless. So we have seasons where it's all hopeful and all good, and we have seasons where we're stuck, and we move through them, and there are boundaries in life. The good news behind all this, though, is that the reality is because we are boundaried, because we have a limit to our lives, we will not ever finish it all. You're like, why is that good news? You will not ever finish all the things you have to finish in life. And because of that, you can let yourself off the hook. You don't have to finish it all. All you have to do is what God has given you right in front of you. We discover, as we discover our finitude, that when we come to the end of our possibilities and the end of ourselves, we can come to God. We can discover that he is out there making the world go around, that he is out there creating new life and new people and and doing a new thing in the world, and we don't have to make it happen. We don't have to make our finances happen. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to get it all right. We can just be who we are, and God will love us in that moment, in our boundaries, in our limitedness, in our finiteness. When we hit that wall of finitude, when we discover our boundaries, There's a grief that happens. There's a sadness that comes along with what we can't do, what we can't be, what will never get done. But there's a freedom that comes as we discover at the end of ourselves that God is working. Again, we go to sleep and we discover that God kept it all moving. At the end of my ability to heal the broken things in my life, at the end of my ability to heal the broken things of the world, that's where God is out working, doing his part making things go around, healing and restoring. There's a freedom in knowing that I don't have to work so hard to try to reach all of those infinite possibilities that life hands us, all the infinite possibilities that the internet hands us. I am not infinite. God is. 
So there's room for grace and compassion for my own humanity, for your humanity, for your failures, for your mistakes, for the things you can't get done, and for the humanity of others when they fail. When we discover our finiteness, we are reminded to embrace all of the beauty and the love and the goodness that we can see in this limited world and our limited experience and to hold on to it for all that we're worth and to let God works it out, work out the rest. When we do that, that's when we begin to truly live because that's when we let go of our need to control. That's when we let go of our self-importance. We discover that we are just one piece of the whole and we can hold on to all that is good and wonderful and beautiful in life. And it seems, my experience as a pastor, as I've met people suffering, as I've met people moving toward the end of their life and even at the end of their life, that the people who have a, truly have an easy time letting go of their life and dying easily and dying well, they're the ones that have actually lived. That they've let go of it all along and took up the beauty that the world has. That they've brought something beautiful to the world. And as they've learned to just live that way, they're not so afraid of death anymore. It's ironic that it takes us living to let go of life. And that's the invitation of Lent. So when we realize the limit of ourselves, we're forced to reckon with our finitude, that we have a beginning and an end. But that also causes us to realize just how vulnerable life can be. And this is also kind of a, a downer to think about. But we are vulnerable, and we don't like to talk about death because it really is the place of our ultimate vulnerability. It's the one thing we can do nothing about. We will die one way or another. Maybe take us a long time. It may be next week. It may be tomorrow. Maybe 15 minutes after the service is over. Hopefully nobody kills over while I'm still talking. That would be upsetting. We don't like to talk about it because we know that we are fragile. Humans are way more fragile than we think. I mean, just think about driving down the road. You think, I'm encased in this big piece of steel, and there's airbags all around me, and I've got all of this safety equipment, but people die in cars all the time. In fact, more people die in cars than airplane accidents, and people kind of freak out about flying in an airplane. It's the reality is that we are fragile. Our bodies, our organs, and all of these things inside of us are fragile, and they break easily. And it's not just our physical bodies, but it's our minds, it's our hearts, our psyches. They can break very easily. And when those things that are a part of us start coming apart, and we discover just the, the reality that we are not as strong as we thought we were, and we discover the reality that we're not, life isn't as beautiful as we thought it was, or I am not as beautiful, all of these things that are broken and not beautiful, they suddenly become visible to us, and that visibility puts us off. And even more, we're afraid that when we discover it and when we see those things, that other people will see it too. That's the vulnerability of being a human being. Again, as the, the author of Ecclesiastes say, things are not as they were meant to be. Where there's supposed to be justice, there's wickedness. Where there's supposed to be righteousness, there's wickedness. And that's not just the world around us, it's me. And it's you. It's us. There's something corrupted in each of us, and we desperately want to hide it. We want to keep it in the shadows. We want to hope that it's never seen. And we only want people to see the very, very best parts of us. And that's why we avoid discussion of death, because we don't want to see, we don't want others to see that vulnerability that we have. The reality is that 
death and dying exposes the reality of our brokenness. We will decline. We will become mentally weaker. We will become physically weaker. We will, most of us, experience a second childhood. That's just the way it is. We can fight it. We work out. We take all kinds of skin creams and Botox and fillers and hair dyes. We can take supplements. We can wear sun hats. But really, we can only delay death for so long. It will come. And Lent is a season where we remember and walk in that vulnerability with each other and with God. We walk in our finitude, our, our borders, our boundaries, and we discover the beauty of it. I want you to know that Jesus, when we come to Jesus, he never said once that we should worship him. Never once did he say we should worship him. But what he said many, many, many times was that we should follow him. And he said, take up your cross and follow me. And then he goes to a death on a cross and dies. He's inviting us to not just follow him in his teachings or his good ideas, not just follow him in loving one another, but following him in our death, dying to ourselves each day, dying to our self-importance, dying to our need for control, and eventually dying in every physical way so that we can actually follow him to the resurrection. We like to focus on the teachings of Jesus where he says, he who believes in me will never die. But we skip over the part where you, you have to die in order to never die. You cannot experience rebirth, being born again, without experiencing in some real form death first. It's, it's required. The ashes that, that we use on, on Ash Wednesday, they're, and I said this earlier, they're made from the palm fronds of the, of the celebration of Jesus coming to town. You know, they say Hosanna, and they're waving the palm fronds like flags. It's a big celebration. And they take those palms, and then they burn them and make the ashes to remind us that, you know, there are times where it's all celebration, it's all good, but we are ash, and to ash we shall return. We have to, we have these, this new life that we want, but we have to experience death first in order to experience the resurrection. We discover that our, our weakness and our vulnerability are actually the pathway by which we meet God. That's the good news of your finitude, of your vulnerability as a human being. Jesus gives us kind of a, a map of, of that pathway in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. He says things like this, blessed are the poor. And we're like, ah, man, poor people, it's hard. Poor people are wondering what they're going to eat. Poor people are wondering how they're going to make it. Poor people are wondering if they're going to have electricity. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Because they're going to meet God. It's a pathway to God in their poverty. Blessed are the meek. The meek are quiet. The meek don't get all the things. They're not seen. They don't have the positions of authority and power. Jesus said the meek have access to God. Blessed are the grieving. None of us want to grieve. It's hard. We have experienced emotions that are out of our control. We experience loss. We're, there are days where it's just a dark pit when we're in grief. We want the bright, sunny days where, where things are in our control and, and we're not sad. We're happy. We want these things. But Jesus says, in your grief, there is a pathway to God. 
Blessed are those who are suffering. Blessed are those who persecuted. These are the people that will encounter God. And these are us. As much as we try to pretend and fight and try not to be those things, we are the poor, the meek, the weak, the suffering, the persecuted. Not today, maybe, but tomorrow or the next day, it will come to all of us. The hard stuff of life isn't something that's meant to be rejected or set aside. It's not meant to be avoided, but it's a pathway where we actually meet God. And that's the wisdom of Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent. It's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that as we embrace our finiteness, as we embrace our vulnerability, that we can take up the life of God, that we can encounter the living God in the here and now, not just the there and then. But here's the thing, and I don't want you guys to all feel like you have to rush. It takes season after season after season of overcoming our resistance to death, of, of, of putting aside our need for control. It takes time to work this through in our lives. Today's sermon isn't going to do that for you. You're not going to walk out these doors and just be like, man, I do have life all figured out, and it, it is so wonderful and beautiful, and I really only have this one dash to live, and I'm going to live it to my fullest. You know, you might do it for 10 or 15 minutes, and you might go do something joyous. You might call somebody that you love. You might tell them that you love them. You might, I don't know what you might do, but eventually you're going to go back to control. You're going to go back to self-importance. You're going to go back to these things, and our, our, it's our journey that we walk is by continually allowing God to work in us, to pry our fingers from our life so that we can take up something good and beautiful. C.S. Lewis said it this way, we really would prefer our rituals to anything real or risky. He says, it's easier to hold a sacred object to return to a memorable place or mimic transformative words than to trust and rely on the new life. Like, we prefer to come to church so that we can become a better person. We prefer to go to Christmas and Easter and, and touch these holy things and then just live our life out here and never let it change us. But what God is out to do, by gifting you with this one dash, by gifting you with a body that is weak and vulnerable, is a pathway to encounter the true and living God. And it's going to take time for us to slowly loosen our grip on the sacred objects, to slowly in our grip on uh, the, the idea that a good worship service is what makes me connect with God, and to discover that we are dust, and to dust we shall return, and that what we have already is sacred and holy. What we have already is wonderful. So, to close, what are we supposed to do? Two things. Number one, I really liked how the author of Ecclesiastes ended his little rant here about this is really depressing, sad rant, but he ends it with this. So I saw that there is nothing better that all should enjoy their work, for that is their lot. And you're like, well, I don't like my work. I don't like my job. I don't like my school. I don't make enough money, whatever it happens to be. That's not the work that the author is talking about. He's talking about the work of human beings and the work of animals. What is the work of animals? What is the work of my dog, Dexter? It's to be a dog. <laughs> it's to be the fluffy, fluffy little ball of love that wags its tail. He does his job well. It's to be my comfort pet when I sit down in the seat and I'm like, 
and he climbs up in my lap and he looks at me with those eyes. That's his job. He does it really well. I also have chickens. You know what my chicken's job is? Apparently, it's to make a big mess and stink a lot because they're not laying many eggs right now. Their job is to lay eggs. What is my job as a human being? Now, I have work, but my task as a human is to love other people well, to love the people that are in my life well, to be present to them. This is your job, too, to be connected with one another, to love one another, and to love God. That's the two big commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is your job. And so what are we supposed to do with all this death and dying business? Just do your job. Just live the life that God's given you. Love the people that God has given you to love. Our work, according to Solomon here, is to live the one life we've been given. And to close, to keep it really light and happy, Rather than a question today, it's a statement. And I just want you to ponder the statement and what it means for you. This is, if you're a guest, this is what we do. We end with a question, let you just think about it for a minute, and then we stand and we sing and we kind of talk and hang out and go our ways. But we hope that that question or thought will stay with you throughout the week as you're just living life, that that question will come up, that thought will come up. And so this morning's thought is really simple. Uh, It's the very last thing. From dust you come and to dust you shall return. Let's take just a minute to ponder that in silence before we sing and end our time. Just stand with me. Remember this, that Jesus never once called you to worship him, but he called you to follow him. So live your life. Know that you have boundaries, that you can have this one glorious life to live. Love the people that God's given you to love. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and know that Jesus loves you in return as well. Let's sing. Praise God from...
go and live your life in joy. We will see you next week where we'll talk about something else other than death, I think. <laughs>